Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. On behalf of everybody at HeritageRadioNetwork.com, we'd like to send a special thank you to the Hearst Ranch, our biggest supporter and longest-running sponsor since we first started in 2009. Hearst Ranch is the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. Since 1865, the Hearst family has raised cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of the Central California coast. The result is beef with extraordinary flavor that's as memorable and natural as the surrounding landscape. For more information, visit www.hearstranch.com. listening to Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it's a chilly, chilly weekend before, or sorry, Monday before Christmas holiday, and I'm so happy to get my hands on, uh, I guess, an early present for me. It's a wonderful book that um, would make a great gift, I'm sure, for lots of other, maybe your dads, maybe your granddads, or anyone who might be an adventurous chef. And I'm joined by the author. His name is Hank Shaw, and he's the author of Hunt, Gather, Cook, Finding the Forgotten Feast. Hi, Hank. Are you there? I am. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Obviously, on telephone, not currently in Brooklyn. How are things on the West Coast? Uh, well, today they're sunny and pretty cool. Yeah, did you find any uh, great uh, foraged anything today? Uh, not today, but I'm sort of recovering from an epic weekend. Okay. Uh, we went porcini mushroom hunting um, and then on Saturday, and then yesterday we went hunting up in the, uh, in the Sierra Nevada foothills and just came home with all kinds of cool game. Oh, man. What's, what's all kinds of cool game? Because any game to me is pretty amazing. <laughs> well, no... Normally, my winters are spent duck hunting, and, and, and we definitely got a bunch of mallards. Um, we went to Little Ponds and Jump Shot Mallards. Okay. And then we also got a bunch of barn pigeons, which are, they look exactly like city pigeons, except mm-hmm. they eat grain and not Doritos. Um, and then we got a few quail and a rabbit and a couple of doves. So it's, it's a tremendous mixed bag that, that's going to make for a lot of interesting suppers. That should be an amazing Christmas supper, or Hanukkah, or whatever you celebrate. Um, and tell me, uh, what it, it, settle this dispute? Is a pigeon, like you mentioned, the same thing as a squab, which is a much more elegant? It is. It, it is. is. It's the same species, but a squab. Think about squab as kind of pigeon veal. Um, hmm. a, a, a squab is a, is a pigeon that's not really allowed to fly around, and it's young. So they're often um, the best producers have them in giant, you know, giant sort of warehousey things where they get to fly around a little bit, but it's not like they're flying from county to county like a wild pigeon would. And uh, and they are butchered at I don't know exactly how many months, but they're less than a year. So that's what makes them so tender. Our no, pigeons are a little bit they work for a living, so a little bit more tough. Well, they taste. I'd love to try that version that you've got, but I love squab anyway. And that—that's actually interesting because I was going to read from a little passage from your introduction in Hunt Gather Cook, um, if you don't mind. Am I going Go ahead. ahead? All right. So, what you may ask is the big deal with wild food. For starters, wild food lived by its own devices. It was not fed a strict diet of anything. It was not fed. It fed itself. 
It is free from our dubious husbandry and, and in most cases is the better for it. Wild plants such as lamb's quarters or amaranth are so full of vitamins they make spinach look like a Twinkie. Wild fish are universally recognized by eaters and experts alike as tastier than those reared by aquaculture. And so on and so on. And uh, like you said, the wild uh, pigeon and so forth is another example, I guess, sounds. Absolutely. Now, th- this is so cool because um, you've been a long time, well, lifelong hunter, or your dad was as well. And well, I haven't been a lifelong hunter, actually. I've been a lifelong mm-hmm. angler and a lifelong forager. But mm-hmm. I only picked up hunting when I was 32, about a decade ago. And okay. so I'm kind of a, uh, you know, I have a friend named Tovar Cerulli who, who coined the term adult onset hunting. <laughs> and uh, I definitely fit that bill. But and I have been doing it for a decade. It seems like hunting is sort of like uh, maybe a dying uh, breed because it's like, I, I don't know, my grandparents, my dad would hunt, but my brother can't even, it's not interested at all. And I'm, I, I don't think I could hunt just because I'd be terrified that somebody would accidentally shoot me instead of a deer. <laughs> but uh, what got you inspired to start at, at 32? Um, well, I know, you know, like I said, I'd always been fishing and, and foraging, and I was living in St. Paul, Minnesota at the time. And one of my best friends was the outdoor writer for the St. Paul Pioneer Press, where we both, both worked. And I was talking to him about how a long time ago I used to live on Long Island. And one summer, when I was a very poor newspaper reporter at a weekly paper out there, um, I managed to pretty much live by my wits, by what I could fish out of the ocean and catch crabs and clams and all that sort of thing. I managed to do that for almost a whole year. And I was telling him this, and he said, well, you know, if you hunted, you could easily do that here in the Midwest. (laughs) And I kind of hemmed and hawed because, you know, I didn't meet another hunter until I was 24. I mean, I grew up in New Jersey. I mean, oh, me too. I, I, Where, I grew what up exit? in a, quite a suburban household. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, I said, all right, yeah, let me go. And and so in Minnesota, you don't have to take hunter safety. So I just bought my license, and, and he lent me a shotgun, and, and, you know, which is a little dubious, but, you know, I trusted <laughs> him. And so we went out on this pheasant hunt in South Dakota, and I couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, but it didn't matter because Chris could. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting to watch him be able to look at a field or look at a, a piece of woodlot or scrubby, crust, scrubby ground and say, oh, yeah, I bet you there's pheasants in there. And he was right. And when pheasants would flush, he wouldn't get flustered. He would just calmly raise his shotgun and shoot the bird. And, you know, all of a sudden we had, you know, chicken for dinner, basically. And, and it was kind of an easy skill, easy in the sense that he was very calm and laid back about it, that... I wanted that ability, and, and so I kind of got the bug, and, and I've been teaching myself and learning from mentors and and going ever since. I mean, it's for me, it kind of completes a circle that started with foraging and fishing. Cool. And and you talk about this sort of kind of uh, a very spiritual uh, feeling you get from, from either of those, you know, just, just providing for yourself, and it feels like more like you're a com- complete human. Is that correct, or...? That's, yeah, I think the thing about it is every animal on the planet knows how to feed itself, except us. If, you, if, you were to, if I were to put you in the middle of you know, anywhere, that there are no supermarkets, no farmer's markets, no nothing, and you had to say, all right, go feed yourself, could you do it? Yeah. Maybe not. And, but I can. 
and there's I'm not the only person out there. There's plenty of people who have the skills that I do, but but the, those skills to me are very very important to ground yourself as as just a, as a human being. Right, you see and, yourself as part of the entire ecosystem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To sort of play. I mean, I, I, the phrase I use in the book is to play your part on nature stage, not just be a spectator. And there's a there's something about doing that, whether it's picking mushrooms or fishing or hunting, that really puts you in the game and it makes you feel different about your surroundings than if you're just walking through it. Well said. Uh, maybe that could be a New Year's resolution. Get more in the game. Play more of a part. <laughs> Well, you could. I mean, you live in Brooklyn. I mean, it's just there's um, Steve Brill lives in this New York City, and he leads foraging walks. We love and Steve Brill. I actually had him on this show, and uh, he was fantastic. Uh, yeah, I wrote you know, and... there's some uh, phenomenal fishing on Long Island. I mean, yeah. one of the biggest things I miss about Long Island is the fishing. I, mean, I don't miss the traffic. Yeah, you but... mentioned the great porgy, porgies. Um, oh, yeah. One of my yeah, you got, you got to go. I mean, because oh. the thing about uh, fishing is you can just drive out there or take a train even to Freeport and jump on a party boat and, you know, pay your 50 bucks or whatever it is and and go fishing. And they'll help you out. You tell you, hey, I'm a new fisherman, and, and I want to learn, and the mates will be helpful. And, and, it, and, you know, you can just, you can jive, you can literally dive into fishing the way mm. you can't do it with hunting. And, and hunting is kind of limited where you live anyway. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's not that hard to get started doing this. Wow. And what are some tips you might recommend for finding um, a, a fishing kind of tour boat or a guide that is very, uh, very cognizant of uh, uh, maintaining fisheries and stocks of certain types of seafood. Are they all? Well, not, for the most yeah, part? they pretty much all are. Because everybody, you know, we, you know, charter boats and fishing boats all run on on state and federal law. And you know, there's uh, there are very few band. I'm, I've heard of a few bandits out there, but ninety nine percent of the guides and all the party boats. Because if the party boats, that's the one where there's maybe twenty or thirty people on the boat. Mm-hmm. If if they get busted for doing something illegal, um, their whole operation shuts down, and those are those are expensive boats, and they need to you know yeah. they need to follow the straight yeah, and narrow. Awesome. So you're pretty much always in a in a good shape if you go on on a licensed boat, and and those boats are they're all over the country. I mean, I've been in I've been in charters everywhere from the Gulf Coast to Florida to Maine to, to Washington State to Baja California. I mean, it's you know, it's, they're, they're everywhere. And what do you think about, because um, you talk about uh, how you've been fishing for your whole life and you've seen firsthand the decline of a lot of these uh, species or, um, for fishing, at, like salmon or, or uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's another one? Tuna? No. Codfish. Cod. Codfish is a big yeah. one. Yeah. Well, what do I think about it? I mean, I think that, that I, if, provided I don't get hit by a truck tomorrow, mm-hmm. I think in my lifetime... I will see the end of commercial fishing. Mm. Um, I think commercial fishing is going the same way that commercial hunting went a century ago. There used to be commercial hunting. I mean, there used to be guys who would go out there and shoot 150 ducks and mm. sell them at a market. And now we are kind of appalled at that ass- at that idea. And I think the day is coming pretty soon, you know, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, where we're going to get the same idea about commercial fishing. I mean, we're already starting to feel that way about bluefin tuna. Yeah, we're already I mean, almost out. <laughs> <Are> we? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the commercial, the commercial, 
you know, exploitation of bluefin tuna is appalling. And, you know, I would support a total ban on, on kind of bluefin tuna fishing for a decade or even more to let the stocks recover. I mean, that's what they did with, with codfish. Yeah. And that, that's what they did with sturgeon on the East Coast. I mean, there used to be a huge sturgeon fishery all up and down the East Coast, and, but they overfished them in the 1920s. And they've n- never come back the same. That's and it's almost a century. Well, it's good to know that sometimes, you know, there's a lot of lessons to be learned through history. Because, you know, with the cod, it has, um, you know, regained after, re, uh, you know, repopulated after the, the, the Canada ban on, on that. Mm-hmm. And then, but now it's, it's even, uh, you know, it's mostly aquaculture now. So what's, what's the story with that? Aquaculture can be good and it can be bad. I mean, the thing, uh, aquaculture, for, let, let's start by the easy ones, shellfish. Um, aquaculture shellfish is a wonderful thing, and I've never read or heard anything bad about, about it. Uh, the, the shellfish that you get from aquaculture is high quality, and it is actually good for the environment. But that's the easy one. Harder ones would be something like, you know, salmon is, is the legendary one. Um, yeah. Because salmon are carnivores. I mean, you can't feed salmon, you know, grain pellets. And so you've got to kill fish to feed this fish. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that's a fair trade. I mean, I, I kind of... I always say, give the, me those The smaller sardines. fish are kind of underpinning of everything else. And if you wipe them out, then what happens? Yeah, I know. Exactly. They're fueling these big fish, but it's like we could feed ourselves just with, just as well with these anchovies and so forth. I love anchovies. Do you yeah. too? I do, too. I love them. And I, I like how this book really, um, you know, you you might not normally think of a hunter or fisher as, I mean, no offense, as like a gourmand, but these recipes are really great. And they're especially helpful for using fish like um, mackerel and uh, oily. What's herring? you got some great recipes for that. Um, love me some herring. Yeah, and we usually see that, you know, pickled or, or some some very, like, limited way that it's prepared. But um, I don't know. I, I, these are these are very inspiring, so hopefully... Well, I come, I come to all of this from, as a cook first and an outdoorsman second. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a difference between a hunter who cooks and a cook who hunts. I'm a cook who hunts. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the, the perspective of, yes, I love the outdoors, and yes, it's a very, very moving experience and all of that. But if I couldn't eat what I shot or what I caught or what I picked or whatever, I wouldn't do it. You know, it would be it would be some kind of a weird truncated, interrupted feeling. I just like and the for kill. Me, the finishing <laughs> of it is the, is the table. Very awesome. Um, so um, we're just going to have a quick little musical break, if you don't mind, and sure. we'll be right back with some more questions. back with Hank Shaw, author of Hunt, Gather, Cook, on today's episode of Let's Eat In. 
Um, great musical selection there, uh, producer Jack. That <laughs> <laughs> was fun. Um, do you do you ever like go out with an iPod when you're fishing or hunting and play any favorite songs? Just curious. No, I don't <laughs> own an iPod. I'm kind of a luddite. Yeah, it's nice to be out in nature, right, and just hear the the music of the birds and so forth. I imagine. You know, it, what's funny is I, I've never heard of anybody listening to music while hunting because <laughs> you'd never you'd never all the animals would hear it and they'd run away. But I know a, a lot of people question. who will listen to music while they're fishing, and for me, I can't do that because. I need to have. I need to be utterly focused on what's on the end of my line because fishing is a fascinating experience because you are focusing everything on an unseen object and and it's your senses other than sight and sounds come into play and that's sort of one of the the special things about about going fishing and that you don't necessarily get when you're hunting or foraging. Hmm. M- music would wreck that. Yeah. Would you use? Uh, I don't know. Smell taste and what other senses besides it's mostly everything focuses on the line and it's touch mostly and and in that sixth sense because there's a number of fish that the old saying is the best way to hook these fish is right before they bite the the lure you get this kind of crazy little anticipatory you know sixth sense of like there it is and and you hook the fish <laughs> and if you don't get it um you know you the guy standing next to you can you know catch nothing all day and then you you're filling a bucket wow so it is that like crucial moment you have to be very very aware of absolutely like meditation cool um tell me um this is my favorite question that i have to ask every guest so Hopefully it won't be too embarrassing. But what is the ultimate date meal? So, so you're trying to impress someone. You know, you you want to fix something nice. Uh, what do you think? Oh wow! God, I haven't been on a traditional date for a while. I've been with my girlfriend for so long. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, what Valentine's I Day. I, you know, I, I kind of like small birds. Mm. Um, and the reason I like small birds is because there's something sexy about them, and the other part about it is you have to eat them with your hands. So you're getting a little bit messy just as you're doing it. And, you know, you'd be sitting across the table looking at her, and she's looking at you, and, and there's that moment where she's thinking, do I need my knife and fork for this quail? And then you just pick it up and start gnawing on it, and then every, all that tension breaks. And then, you know, the great sauce is dripping down your chin, and, and you're drinking a good bottle of wine. And, you know, there's... I think I'd go with a with a with you know a quail or a small duck or a squab. You know that's that would be my date night. Nice. You know? It's like we're all animals here. That's fun. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. So quail or squab. Quail is not that small, right? It's kind of like quail are small. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, uh. I you know if you go to a restaurant, you normally you're served two quail as a as an entree. Okay. Well, I, I'm a fan of uh, D'Artagnan, which I, I see you have a quote from Ariane here, Dagan. Oh, Ariane's a friend. Yeah. yeah. So they have some good quail from D'Artagnan. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. All right. Let's talk a little bit more about um, foraging, because those mushrooms sound so appealing. And uh, there's been a lot of talk about foraging for mushrooms in, in New York. Uh, I've been you know, reading the New York Times and stuff. There's like chanterelles to be found. Um, and you just found porcini, you said? Mm-hmm. No. Yeah, Porcino on the central coast of California. Oh, that's so unfair. <laughs> They're yeah. so expensive. Well, you know, there <laughs> is a reason why people move here. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, what would you? What are you planning to do with those 
porcini? Well, there's you know the thing about whenever you're you're picking mushrooms is there's dryers and then there's fresh ones. So you know they're all porcini, but some of them are a little far gone. So you cut them into pieces and you dry them, and then you have jars and jars and jars of dried porcini all, all winter long. And, you know that's not such a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And then, but about you know a quarter of the ones that you pull back are perfect. They're just beautiful. They're the ones that will that'll cost thirty dollars or forty dollars a pound in the New York market. Mm. And those, you, you know, those are things that you just eat simply. You slice them so that they look like the, the you know, the horizon of the mushroom. You cut them lengthwise. And all you do is you saute them very simply in butter or olive oil with a little thyme, a little garlic, and then hit a very small splash of, you know, verjus or, um, or lemon juice right at the end. And just eat them and just enjoy them as they are. That sounds perfect. I might have to splurge on some soon. Um, so tell me some advice because I've, you know, I've been on many of Steve Brill's walks and I've been foraging for stuff like very innocent stuff like dandelions and, and, uh, I don't know, onion, you know, wild onions for a long time. And I, I sometimes pepper them in dishes that I might bring to a potluck or I might serve at a dinner, um, like a dandelion salad and so forth. But, uh, 90%, I think of the people that well, first of all, they're people that I'm acquainted with, so they're a little bit on the, on that level, too. But, you know, there's always that 10% that are like, oh, my God, you picked those dandelions in Prospect Park, and you're telling me to eat this. Are you crazy? Are you trying to kill me? Like, what? How, do you ever encounter this um, and have to deal with uh, how to explain or convince people my that favorite, it's okay? My favorite question that I, get, that I get asked, and it's, only asked by city people. I've never heard this question by any rural oh. person. It's always city folks. All right. How do you know a dog didn't pee on it? Yes, that's what they always say to me. They always say it. And I'm like, really? Do you not have a sink? Yeah. <laughs> or I, say I mean, there's, can... this, there's this notion that, that if a dog peed on your dandelion, that somehow that pee would penetrate the center of the dandelion and poison it from within. Like, right. no, dude, just wash it off. Right. You know, and it's just the take thing a look you at really it. need to worry about is if you're picking in a brownfield, for example, or you're picking on a Superfund site, or if you're picking in a polluted area. I mean, that's a much more real danger in urban foraging than or some gardening, dog pee. too. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I warn people about urban foraging in the sense that you kind of have to know where you're going, and you have to know the rules. I mean, I think they just banned uh, foraging in Central Park. So if you okay. still are still picking in Central Park, you're kind of an outlaw. I mean, I don't think it's the same thing as robbing some old lady, but, you know, I, you don't want to get busted, right? Yeah, it's actually banned in in, in city, New York City parks, but unless you go with Steve Brill or something. It's it's like this weird loophole. Well, because there's a bazillion people in, in, in Manhattan, and if everybody <laughs> did it, you know, it's not necessarily good for the ecosystems there. Right. And As if that would you happen. Know, <laughs> Huh? As if that would happen, right? <laughs> I know, I know, but I mean, it's just, you know, that's it's it's bureaucracy kind of totally. They're they're kind of ham-handed answer to a problem that may or may not exist. Totally. Um, but what I usually tell those people is, well, you know what happens to the produce in the stores, right? And then they just this pause and Uh-oh. they're like, well. I mean, I live in agriculture country in California where all of your produce America comes from. And, <laughs> and let me tell you that I think that wild food is infinitely cleaner. Um, there mm-hmm. is, 
you know, as long as you're washing things off and you're not, you know, picking stuff from the side of a highway, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that happens. I mean, you heard about the E. coli scares with spinach and and bean sprouts are practically a hazardous substance. And, and you know, it's, it's I'm not saying that commercial agriculture is dirty. I'm just saying that it's no dirtier or no cleaner than wild food. So, I mean, people really should just sort of wake up a bit. Right. That's a scary thought. I mean, it discomforts people in a way that they'd rather not think about it, but that's very true. Um, I'll have to remind them of that one, that unfortunate fact yeah, you <laughs> next know. time. So uh, we just have a few months left, but uh, what do you think is your favorite uh, recipe in this wonderful cookbook? Venison medallions with morel sauce I just saw. Looks good. Do you have a favorite oh, or go-to? You know, I have a lot. They're all my children, so it's hard to okay. pick among them. But the one that I just really, really enjoy doing is the uh, – there's a dish in the Misfit Fish chapter of Spanish shark with um, with pine nuts. Mm. And that dish is uh, – every time I serve that dish, people go over the moon for it. And it doesn't have, you don't have to do it with shark. Um, you just use any firm white fish. Swordfish is good with it. Tilefish is good with it. Sturgeon is good with it. Anything that's firm that you can cut into chunks that won't fall apart when you fry them, uh, and it's served with you know roasted red peppers and pine nuts and a lot of oregano, and it's just it's a phenomenal dish. And you know it's one of those things where even people who don't really much like fish, they just they can't get enough of it. Yeah, because it's like a big meaty slab of of firm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's chunks. It's yeah. big old chunks oh, okay. that are that are uh, floured and fried. Okay. And it's just ah, uh, it's a super meaty flavor. Right, right. Because that's a nice, nice meaty fish piece. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, um, I know that you're still writing and blogging away at Hunt, Hunter Angler. <laughs> Why do I get tripped up? Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, your blog, exactly, yes. which was a uh, won a James Beard. No, it was nominated twice for James Beard Award. Nominated, yeah. I, uh, I won the IACP award twice, but. Uh, I've yet to take home the Beard Award. Well, congratulations. <laughs> that is huge. Um, what are you, you working on next? Any other books, you, perhaps? Well, no, I've got a couple book ideas in the, in the, in the works. Um, that, you know, I just, I just, you know I've, been on, I've been on book tour from May until November, so I didn't have a lot of time to think about what's next when I was trying to you know, take care of business with, with Hunt, Gather, Cook. But um, I've got a couple ideas in the, in the hopper, and hopefully I'll be able to talk about them soon. But in the meantime, I mean, I'm just getting back to the blog. I'm having a lot of time, a lot of good times just sort of doing what I do. I mean, yeah. every day is a new adventure, <laughs> and every day is a new chance to work with something interesting and, and find a new food and, and experiment with it and, and hopefully give people some good idea of good knowledge of what to do with wild foods. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for expanding this uh, frontier of exciting cooking for me and for so many other people. Um, and I hope you have a great holiday and enjoy some R&R, <laughs> finally. You too. I'm looking forward to roasting a goose for Christmas. All right, guys. Check out Hank Shaw's work at Hunter Angler Gardener Cook and any other URL that you have going on. I mean, we'll put uh, it on Honest-food.net. Right. All right. Thanks so much, Hank. And um, thank you. we'll see you next week on Heritage Radio Network. 